Welcome to episode four of the Healthcare Hub podcast. My name is Abhinav and I'm joined here with my co-host Tyler. How are you doing today, Tyler? I'm doing fantastic today, Abhinav. How are you? I'm doing great. Really excited to have our first semester of the MBA program completed. Uh, and reflecting back on the semester, it's been great to have so many diverse speakers on our show. And I'm really excited to the future of uh, the podcast and the, the Healthcare Hub. Yeah, we have some really awesome guests lined up that are going to be pumped out over the next month. So we're looking forward to everyone hearing those. But on this fine day, we have a nice holiday gift for all of our listeners with this wonderful podcast where we cover a lot of interesting topics. So we're very excited to share. Absolutely. And just to cover our episode here today, Tyler will first be talking a bit about the dissemination of the COVID-19 vaccine and a little bit on the Ontario Hospital Association and some of the work they've been doing with the government. We then actually have a guest speaker from the hospital, Ontario Hospital Association coming in, Hazim Hassan, who is Vice President Business Planning and Strategy and President of the OHA Legacy Fund. And we're really excited to have him on the show. I'll then be closing off the episode with a little bit on H1, a startup company that is similar to LinkedIn, but more focused and specialized on the healthcare industry. So overall, a really exciting episode here today. Uh, are you as excited as me to get this one started, Tyler? I am fired up, Avinav. Let's get it going. Welcome, everybody, to the Healthcare Hub news segment for this episode. Uh, kicking it off, we are going to be talking about Ontario's dissemination of the COVID-19 vaccine right off the hop here. So on Friday, the Ontario government announced that 17 hospitals would be receiving the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine over the next two weeks, including those hotspot regions where there's a lot of infection right now and the major cities in Ontario. So first doses were administered this week at University Health Network in Toronto and the Ottawa Hospital. Before the end of the year, Ontario is expecting to obtain up to 90,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine from the federal government. So obviously 90,000 doses it won't cover everybody, but definitely a nice start before the end of the year to cover those healthcare, uh, a lot of those healthcare providers and people at risk. And then the, also the Moderna vaccine approval process is supposed, supposed to take uh, about a couple more weeks for Health Canada. So the, that'll be added into the supply chain as well once that's completed. But despite all that good news, there's definitely a good amount of time here before a lot of the population receives the vaccine. So between that time and now, the Ontario Hospital Association is calling for immediate action to avoid devastating surges in COVID-19 patients. So on Thursday, they had a news release. Uh, so we didn't actually get to talk to Hazim about this news release because uh, the Ontario Hospital Association released it after our inter interview. But the release was talking about the expanded roles that Ontario hospitals are taking on during the pandemic. Obviously, a lot of scheduled surgeries have been pushed back. So they're, they're still trying to catch up on about 150,000 scheduled surgeries that were supposed to happen during the first wave. And then also they're figuring out this COVID-19 distribution. They're, they have this big ramp up in COVID-19 patients. So hospitals are really busy and healthcare providers are being pushed to the limits at the moment. And with the second wave ramping up to over 2,000 cases, on most days, 2,000 new cases that is, uh, the occupan occupancy of intensive care units are taking a toll on the healthcare providers and this is only getting worse. So as the holiday season's coming up, a lot of people you would expect may be ignoring these COVID guidelines and seeing their families, going to a Christmas dinner or Hanukkah or, or go, just meeting up with family in general. So the OHA wanted to make some requests of the healthcare system and people in general ahead of the holiday season to make sure we stay on track and keep these uh, surges under control. So Avinav, I'm going to let you know of these requests that they made, and then I'm going to get your thoughts on them after, see, uh, see what your thoughts are. So the Ontario Hospital Association made a few requests in this release on Thursdays. First, they want the public to keep following precautions and keep the fight against COVID going strong through the holidays. Like the vaccine is coming out next year, but between now and then, they can't let everything they've worked for so far fall apart and let these surges go bananas before we get this vaccine because that could still have some dev devastating consequences before things start getting better. Also, the hospital, so, uh, the Ontario Hospital Association noted, uh, they noted it was with deep regret that they asked the government to implement a four week lockdown in every public health unit with an infection rate of over 
40, 40 out of 100,000 people or higher. So this still keeps within Ontario's uh, COVID-19 response framework, but obviously comes off a little, uh, you know, it hits you pretty suddenly. It comes off a little abrasive, so that's definitely an interesting request. They also recommended that the gray zone of the province's framework be reevaluated by independent public health and epidemiological experts to, to determine if stricter provisions are necessary. So for those of you, those of you who, who don't recall, which I'm sure is most of you because the guidelines have changed a lot of time in Ontario, the gray zone is the lockdown zone that comes after the red control zone in the framework. So most of the hotspots like Toronto, Peel, Hamilton, where those infections are super high, they're in the red zone right now where you're keeping the pandemic under control. And then the next zone in that framework is the gray zone where that area would go into a full lockdown. Uh, OHA is just recommending that the framework uh, for those health is evaluated with regards to how quickly those health units would move into a lockdown. So with all this added, uh, it's just a measure to help those hotspot areas completely reset and open safely, especially those high risk workplaces during this time. So just making sure you get that full reset where four week lockdown, people aren't entering that building, people can get healthy and get the COVID out of their system if they have it and then get back to work. And they acknowledge that this requires support from the government with regards to giving some funding to these businesses so they can survive the lockdown or more financial support to workers so they can afford to stay home. But overall, they're requesting people keep following the COVID precautions through the holidays that places with a 40, 40 out of 100,000 infection rate or higher move into a four week lockdown and the gray lockdown zone of the province's COVID-19 response framework be reevaluated by independent organizations. So Abinaf, what are your thoughts on these? What, any, any thoughts sticking out to you? Yeah, I think it's great that the OHA is putting these statements out there. I think it's really hard for people to uh, kind of grasp that, that the situation in terms of caseload right now is much worse currently at the peak of our second wave, which is much greater than our first wave. And I think it's it's important to put this information out there and remind people, I know it's uh, the holiday season, it's a time where people are really used to getting together in big groups, um, but the situation continues and there's still a long way to go until things are even close to, close to normal. Yeah, it's definitely a, a big give and take here with regards to having those business, businesses closed, keeping them open. Four weeks is a long time and that could be especially when you can't do any business in a full lockdown, that could be devastating to some businesses, but obviously devastating to a lot of people if COVID-19 ramps up and devastating to a lot of healthcare workers if those uh, surges keep continuing in hospitals and their workload is super, super high during this time. So uh, yeah, it seems like hard to have a win-win situation here. It seems kind of lose-lose at times, but definitely some support from the government would be helpful to these hospitals to keep things to be able to get COVID under control while keeping businesses alive. So definitely interesting to see, to follow that and see where that goes with regards to who gives and takes more in, in this situation. Absolutely. And especially on the business side, it's been really hard for medium, small size businesses that have, that have opened up again, uh, going, uh, coming out of the gray zone and now going back into the gray zone has been really difficult taking into account all the costs that go into uh, putting in COVID measures into these different locations and then, uh, you know, rehiring staff uh, and then shutting everything down again. And government stimulus uh, for small and medium businesses has been there, but at a certain point, I think Tyler, you and I both know, especially um, government stimulus can only go so far. And even with all the innovations happening in the digital space, uh, in terms of trying to uh, increase revenue sources for business as businesses as much as possible, it's been really difficult. And I, I kind of think this is a reminder for everyone. Uh, you're shopping this Christmas, maybe try to uh, shop locally as much as possible is something we can all do. Yeah, definitely. The, the demand is struggling here with regards to uh, those businesses and getting people in the door and with those lockdowns, the demand could even suffer, suffer more with regards to getting people in these places and buying things and those experiential businesses, especially with that require people to be in person are really suffering. So we just got to get through this last stretch here, uh, keep everybody alive, find some way, whether it's through government stimulus or finding innovative ways to keep those, to conduct those businesses without having people actually go into them. Uh, yeah, we just need to find innovative ways to keep these businesses alive for this last stretch. We're so close, get that vaccine out there and then we can return back to normal at some point, hopefully next year. 
Uh, so it's just the final stretch right now. We've got to keep everything under control to make sure nothing disastrous happens in the meantime before we get to that good spot. And uh, any, uh, any closing thoughts, Avanesh? No, I think that's a great way to end off the segment. And thanks for all the details on uh, the vaccine dissemination. I think that's something that people and our listeners will be really interested about. Yeah, I'm sure it goes without saying that we'll be keeping an eye on this, as I'm sure everyone listening will. So that does it for the Healthcare Hub news segment this week. Moving on to the interview. Haseem Hazan is the Vice President of Business Planning and Strategy and the President of the OHA Legacy Fund at the Ontario Hospital Association. He's got a vast experience in implementing business best practices ac across the healthcare industry. He's also an alumnus of the DeGroote School of Business, so quick shout out from Abin Avani. Welcome to the Healthcare Hub, Hazem. Hey guys, good to, good to see you. I was clipping a couple of the Healthcare Hubs podcasts. You've had some interesting people, so it's, uh, yeah. it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> We're happy to add you to that lineup. Uh, you're a, a very interesting guest as well, so we can't wait to discuss today. <laughs> uh, great to know you're a listener, uh, Hazem. All right. <laughs> and, um, uh, so I'll definitely yeah. kick it off. Uh, we know uh, you did your undergrad studies in uh, BCom at McMaster and your MBA as well. And you focused during your uh, education in uh, strategic mm -hmm. business management. And we were just wondering if that was a uh, decision you made early on, knowing, in, knowing you were going into healthcare, or what was the reasoning behind uh, that area of focus? Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Evan. A very good question. Um, I wish I had that kind of foresight that earlier on in my life. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I know I got into business uh, because I mean that it feels like a bajillion years ago, but um, I did a, a business uh, class in my kind of senior high school, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, to this day, I love every facet of business. I think uh, any business you're a part of, uh, enterprise businesses are a little bit different, but you know any business you're a part of is almost like a living, breathing entity. And uh, I've always enjoyed understanding every facet of it, from the accounting to the finance, the sales to the uh, culture and HR and IT. So I've always loved business, but you know, I, I would describe my early career, uh, even into a few years after I graduated my master's as, um, doing something that I think I was technically good at. I had an interest in, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until I was probably in my mid to late twenties. And, um, I'm happy to say I'm on the, I'm well beyond being on the right track. I've definitely picked the right uh, career direction for me. And, um, and I think that came later. So it wasn't, you know, it was a strategic degree, but I wasn't very strategic in doing it. Um, I just kind of followed what I was generally good at and I enjoyed. And, and it wasn't until later that I, that I thought about uh, healthcare as a career and the direction. That's uh, kind of what everyone seems to be going through in school at the moment. We're all <laughs> picking our specializations for our MBA. So uh, yeah, that yeah, foresight is yeah. definitely important. <laughs> yeah. So, well, they say, you know, Tyler, they say you have three careers in your life. So don't overthink it. You know, you'll get another two kick, kicks of the can if you get the first one wrong. So, uh, you know, it's uh, life's a journey. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, choices you can make along the way. And I know it seems intense in the beginning. Uh, and rightfully so, right? Like you're kind of making pretty big life decisions and taking on debt of school and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you'll get a chance to, uh, to change direction if, if it's not the right fit. So, you know, my advice is always to, to people in the beginning of their career is follow your heart, follow what you like, follow what you enjoy. Uh, see, you know, plan out five years and uh, just kind of be cautious that things will change and you can always change direction. You know, careers are long, so there's a lot of different directions we can go. Yeah, exactly. So when you, your first role was with, uh, after your MBA was in Bell and you were working with a variety of companies doing different uh, enterprise solutions. And uh, it says on your LinkedIn, you specialized in healthcare, public sector and system integrator accounts. So heading into that role, was it just a, some kind of chance of fate that you ended up in a role that heavily <laughs> involves healthcare that kind of got the ball yeah. rolling for the rest of your career? Yeah. And it was just based on a functional interest or was there anything yeah. in you that wanted healthcare going into that? Yeah, no, uh, whew, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, 
I feel like, like I said, I'm, I've always been a business guy and enjoyed business. And I did my, un, my MBA right after I did my undergrad. So I kind of jumped right into it. And, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons to that. But, you know, I, I think one of the great things, and I don't know what stream you guys are in, but one of the great things about the Mac MBA uh, is the co-op stream. Uh, it gives you a lot of real life experience, especially if you've had like less than two years uh, working experience before you went and did your MBA. It's a great way to get a good lay of the land. And I actually did a um, an exchange in Denmark and I got to travel through Europe, which was pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, aside from that, you know, I, I graduated and I knew I was good in business. And naturally, like you do in a co-op, I my first term was at Nortel, uh, which was a really interesting kind of watching a company after it imploded and, and kind of the, the effect of that. But I started at Nortel, then I got two terms at Bell and naturally I got a job at Bell. So, you know, with student debt and the uh, the interest rate on it ticking, I just had to get uh, the first job I could. And But I felt at the time that, you know, business is a skill set, not a career. And I felt that I, I'm enjoying business, I'm good at it, I've done a whole lot of education, seven years of education in business. But, you know, I, I asked myself the question, where do I want to spend the rest of my life? And uh, Bell is a great place to spend, or, you know, telecom and IT is a great place to spend the rest of your life if you're uh, a bit more kind of uh, uh, into tech, which I am, but I'm not, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that's always up on what's new technologies coming out, unless it's relevant to me or I'm not a programmer or anything like that. And I, I just felt like it's not my kind of life's calling. And, and the nice thing about working at a place like Bell, uh, and it's probably the case if, uh, if you work in any enterprise type business, is that you have so many different customers uh, that you can, within your career there, you can start exploring different fields. And, and for me, so I had the entire public sector and I had system integrators like IBM and, and uh a few of the other system integrators that are no longer there now. But, um, you know, for me, the public sector, I got to see a lot of different things, but I started working with especially community care. And, and I just thought everything they were doing was so interesting. I go to these client meetings. I mean, I would be selling these wide area networks, you know, fiber infrastructure, big deals kind of stuff. And, but, you know, I'd just be listening to what they're offering as a service, uh, how they connect with their patients, uh, some of the challenges and opportunities they're facing within the healthcare system. And I just thought, wow, this is really interesting. And, you know, you know, there's also the newspaper desk, you know, like in, now it's all online. But back then there was, you know, newspapers, you know, when you open up a book or a newspaper, what, what attracts your eye? Like what attracts your attention, not kind of from your head, but from your heart? Like and, and your gut, really. And, and um, so, you know, I was in a leadership track at Bell and I had an, an amazing mentor while I was there and I learned a ton and people thought it was crazy to, to leave Bell and, and, you know, as an associate director and move to a manager role in community care and nobody really knew what CCACs were or what they're all about. And, but I just kind of followed my gut and uh, haven't looked back since. Um, so, you know, I think, like I said, you know, business is a skill set, not a life's work. Um, and so I think it's, it's on for many, for many MBAs, they know already before they graduate or undergrad business people, they know already before they, they graduate what they want to do. But I, you know, my recommendation to folks is, you know, specialize in whatever part of business, but then and pick a path that really, uh, uh, feels rewarding to you and resonates with you and everybody's different, uh, in, in that facet. So. Yeah, that's really interesting uh, how you mentioned working with like a large enterprise gives you the opportunity to work in different roles and that led you, led you towards uh, providing healthcare kind of services uh, in, in the public sector. And interestingly, in your role in Bell, uh, it was more focused on being a provider of services. And then when you transitioned in your role as manager, um, you were more responsible for acquisitions of different healthcare products and services. So we were interested in knowing uh, what kind of skill sets did you find were really beneficial, beneficial in transferring from more of a provider role to an acquirer position? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, God, you guys are taking me back. Um, so, you know, I think um, with Bell, 
uh, it was kind of the art of the deal. Like we worked on these really big deals and, and I, I actually learned a lot about uh, understanding client needs and uh, taking, you know, quite complex um, physical and software solutions and, and building uh, those into a, a service offering that addresses a client need. So there was, and Bell is a monster, right? Like there's just so much we can do. And, you know, we had clients like the banks and stuff. So we had like massive infrastructure that we can work with. So it was, you know, uh, understanding need and um, providing it. Um, CCACs, on the other hand, in my role there, I was really a contract manager and I managed the partnership and relationships with the service providers. So, you know, I kind of was on the other side of the fence. So I understood where they were coming from. Most of them, you know, CCACs are an interesting part of the healthcare sector. Well, they just got gobbled up into this new super agency called Ontario Health. Uh, but you know, they're part of the healthcare sector that are funded through the public purse, but they go out for these procurements um, and it could be for-profit or non-for-profit. Uh, and a lot of them are for-profit agencies that win these contracts. So, you know, I think being on the on the Bell side helped me understand the, the for-profit nature of things um, and allowed me to manage the relationships with these quite large providers in some cases uh, in a practical way for them. You know, I'll tell you, one of the things that I don't think we do enough of in business school, and I encourage everybody to, to um, kind of spend a bit more time, in, especially early in their career, to do. And, I, and that was kind of a side bit of learning that I got out of my time at, at CCAC was contracts. Like, contracts are the language of business. Um, being able to understand different contract clauses uh, the nature of the risk that you're uh, kind of uh, opening up your business or your your division to uh, is critical. And uh, if you ever get a chance, especially early on in the career, because you know contracts are boring, let's face it. Uh, but you know, if you get a chance to really delve deeply into the contract law, and whenever you get an opportunity to really understand contracts negotiations, uh, you know, highly recommend you do that. Um, but, you know, I think the big thing for me at CCACs and where I saw the biggest opportunity and, and it's where I really am so glad I, I started off there. CCA community care, you know, back then, uh, community care was the solution to the healthcare challenge, right? Healthcare is, as you guys know, has a serious gridlock issue because the system operates uh, in silos right now. And, you know, we've been trying to fix it for years, you know, we're always trying to fix healthcare, but, you know, CCACs back then, Minister Kaplan uh, had this big report and, and I was, that's what excited me about being there. CCACs were supposed to take patients out of the hospitals and into the community where we're caring for people at home. Uh, and there was a massive infrastructure set up to support that. Um, so for me, as, as kind of a, from a growth perspective, I saw it as an opportunity to touch every part of the healthcare sector because community care was working with primary care, with clinicians, with palliative care, with the hospitals, with the healthcare system, with the ministry. So it was kind of right in the middle. So I really got a good lay of the land um, and before I kind of moved on to my next role. So, you know, I would say, you know, it was, it was the contracts. It was, uh, you know, it's kind of understanding the system throughout. And then, yeah, I mean, certainly my time at, in the private sector, and I slip and slide between the private sector and the public sector. It's really important to kind of be able to understand both hats where, you know, the public sector operates to balance the budget and the private sector operates for the bottom line. And, and you know, you can, you can have a discussion, philosophical discussion on, on what's right and what's wrong, but at the end of the day, that's just the nature of things. So it's it's better as a business person just to understand the nature of the organization you operate in and you're working with. Um, so, you know, exposure to both is, is really, really helpful and, and it will help you because whether you're in the private sector or the public sector, you're going to interact with both kinds of organizations. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you spoke a lot about the importance of contracts and those skills, and that seems like it was a really major part of your next role when, when we delved a little deeper into that one. So your next oh, role yeah. was at the Ontario Hospital Association, and uh, just a little background on that, the OHA, it's essentially a network connecting all 142 hospitals in Ontario, providing guidance, resources, all those sorts of things. So you worked as a program manager on the Capital Procurement Cooperative, which involved leveraging combined buying power between all the hospitals in the network. 
Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about uh, what was involved in that project and specifically, was your aim to make it uh, more of a long-term fixture in Ontario's healthcare system or is, was it kind of like a short-term project that you hoped the hospitals were able to pick up themselves after the project was complete? So it's a good question, Todd, but with your permission, can I tell you something I did before I went to the OHA? Of course, that you I can. think everybody <laughs> should do as part of their life journey. Perfect. So back, uh, it was it was about my second year of at CCAC, and uh, my girlfriend and I, now my wife, uh, really kind of thought, you know, what we're kind of young enough that we can leave uh, our careers and come back. She's in consulting. At, she was was in consulting at Accenture. Uh, and we can take a bit of a secondment and just go. And, and uh, it was tough. I got a, a permission to do a leave of absence from CCAC. And, and I actually got, we got to travel for three and a half months to Southeast Asia, uh, which is honestly eye-opening. I, I can't tell you how important it is to travel and see the world. Uh, I learned a ton. I'm, I'm a, a meditator and, and a yoga teacher. And, uh, you know, for me, that was just such a wonderful journey uh, through a very different part of the world. So it was actually, uh, I was applying for new roles because I knew it was time to kind of transition out of CCAC. And, and I got the call for the OHA somewhere in Vietnam, which was kind of fun. Um, but anyways, I just want to highlight uh, travel, my friends, travel while you're young, because, you know, life's responsibilities are just around the corner. <laughs> So enjoy the freedom while you can. Uh, so I'll tell you. So uh, OHA, uh, I, I mean, I honestly, I am so happy to have found uh, OHA in my career. Um, and, you know, it's an organization that I think is is so creative, so innovative. It's been around for over, uh, what is it, 96, 97 years now. We're, we're close to a century old. And we've created and spun off organizations throughout our career, uh, throughout its, you know, throughout OHA's history. Uh, some are huge, you know, the OHA created and spun off the Healthcare of Ontario pension plan. So if you guys uh, work in a hospital one day, guess what? Your pension plan was once created by the OHA and we actually have a, a, a bit of a role in its governance uh, right now. But, you know, and, and we've created and spun off all kinds of organizations, Xerox, the, the health insurance reciprocal, biggest insurance provider in Canada. And, and, you know, I would describe it as an organization that's got the mind of a private sector organization, but the heart of a non-for-profit and public sector organization. At the end of the day, uh, you know, we're here to serve the system, uh, serve our serve the system through the hospitals. We are the hospital's voice primarily, but we have a very system focused to what we do. And so I've always, it's, you know, when you are we're going through your career and you come across organizations like that, have them in on your radar. And whenever an opportunity comes up, go for it. Um, and that's what happened. Um, the OHA was creating a, a brand new concept uh, to be a, a buying group for capital equipment. So um, there's a lot of buying groups in Ontario, but it's primarily, or there was a lot of buying groups that are, were primarily focused on medical supplies. So you got, you know, the big Plexus, St. Joe buying group, and you get to know them, whether you're in the private sector or in the public sector, when you, when you go out there in the workforce, they're, they're huge. Uh, but there was a real gap in uh, buying uh, capital equipment as a group. So things like MRI machines, CT machines. So these were you know, multi-million dollar purchases. And um, you know, there's a, there was a clear economies of scale of buying it as a group because you'll get bigger savings. But also, uh, you know, a hospital like UHN would be buying a, an MRI maybe every five to 10 years. But, you know, a hospital up north or a smaller hospital that requires an MRI or a CT, you know, that's a pretty big purchase. And while their clinicians are wonderful, they they they, ha they don't do these kinds of purchases very regularly. So the, the knowledge sharing aspect of, of the buying group was very, very, uh, it was a huge added value of this idea and concept. So it was an idea and, you know, it was a contract for me. And uh, it was a one-year contract and it was very entrepreneurial. And I said, you know, I got there. And um, like I said, the OHA is very kind of entrepreneurial and, and entrepreneurial and innovative. And it was really fun. I mean, we, uh, we went out for three procurements. Um, and we, one of them, you know, the biggest purchase was a, a number of CT machines, you know, you know, CTs could go anywhere between one to $4 million. 
And, uh, you know, we worked with clinicians, we worked with the major vendors like Siemens and, and uh, GE and Philips and all those big guys. And, you know, it was really fun. You know, we had, uh, I basically worked with promoting the program, uh, really selling the idea of it to hospital executives. And we also had a, we, we had a team that was running the procurement that I work with and we traveled all over the United States and Canada, um, to look at different, you know, taking groups of physicians to actually look at CT machines and operations and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it was in the wheelhouse that I had at the time that I was focused in on the time around procurement and all that stuff. Um, but I think it was, you know, it was kind of heavy on the negotiation and the contract side again. So it was a great um, year of doing that. But you know, what happened was after a year of doing that, I mean, naturally the buying group said, wait, why don't we do that? And they said, great. You know, the OHA doesn't want to be in the, buying group business if you guys want to we just saw a gap in the sector where everybody could benefit and if we uh, demonstrated the the value here then great you guys go for it and you know it was it was bittersweet because you know i think we we achieved the success we were trying to do in the sector but you know it meant that i had to go on to the next role and uh you know, my love for the OHA had to wait for another day. <laughs> and that's when I, I took off and I, I took my, my first senior leadership role at uh, the Prison Lion Institute, which I'm sure is probably your next question. <laughs> yeah, you got that exactly right. Um, that's, that's, really, that's really interesting, especially the part where you mentioned how um, increasing the efficiency of the healthcare system through the sharing of resources. And I kind of wanted to uh, dive into that, into your role as a, a director at the PRISM Eye Institute. Uh, I was interested to know that at PRISM Eye Institute, you basically work with many different uh, ophthalmologists, optometrists, different staff to kind of centralize the care for the eye. And I was wondering, uh, did you, do you see this model for centralizing care uh, for a specific um, cost for a specific area being uh, applied to other areas in the healthcare system? And uh, what are your thoughts on uh, this kind of model for care? Yeah, um, good question, I mean, um So yeah, so I mean, you know, the, uh, the ophthalmologist, I think some of the most interesting um, physicians you'll ever meet. Uh, and you know, maybe I can just move on for a second. I think Physicians in Ontario is a very in, are a very interesting um, uh, part of the healthcare sector. I mean, they uh, physicians. You know, I think a lot of times people talk about you know healthcare in Ontario shouldn't be private. Well, I mean, most physicians' offices are private, and they you know some many of them run for profit. So, you know, healthcare in Ontario is private and for profit. Uh, it's just that there's a single payer, uh, the the Ministry of Health uh, through the provincial government. So. Uh, you know, uh, and physicians, you know, I, I think it's so interesting that we have this part of our sector that operates almost like the United States, like very, very innovative, entrepreneurial. I mean, we have some of the best surgeons in the world. I mean, the, the, some of the physicians I work with at the Prism Eye Institute are, are the, the, in the top five phys, uh, ophthalmologists, eye surgeons in the world. Uh, and it's amazing that we have this in Ontario and it's covered under all of it. it, it it's quite remarkable. And, you know, the centralizing, centralizing care certainly uh, saw benefits as far as I saw it. I mean, the operations at Prison Mind Institute, we saw hundreds of patients a day. We had a call. I built a call center. Uh, you know, we had 1,500 calls a day. It was, it was just the, the production line of, of, of care and, and done in a very good way by centralizing it and having good kind of EMRs and, and, and processes and management for it. So I think there is a place for it, Abhinav. Um, but, you know, I think the more you centralize, the more you could lose uh, patient focus. So I think, I think it's, there, there are parts of the healthcare system where there is a standard process to be done, where centralization it, it can happen. But, you know, in my opinion, and, you know, I've only been in the healthcare sector now for you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, healthcare is about community, is about helping people understand their life situation, their health situation, and interacting with them on a very uh, kind of foundational level. Um, so, you know, I think in my mind, it's, there is a part of the healthcare system, system that needs to be personal, that needs to be direct, mainly primary care. 
And there's parts of the healthcare system like hospitals, like, you know, eye surgery, like all kinds of other surgical care where you can just run it like a Six Sigma operation. And I think uh, patients and uh, the system will benefit from that, right? Like you don't need your eye surgeon to ask you how your mom's doing. You just need them to give you a good cataract surgery with the best technology uh, with as little complications as possible, right? Uh, but, you know, you, you want to go see your primary care physician and you want to tell them that your mom's suffering from Alzheimer's and maybe you're experiencing some anxiety or depression around that. And, and you know, and for some of you really care about that. So I think to answer your question, yes, absolutely, there's benefits of centralizing care, but not always. My next question uh, touches a little bit more on, uh, well, also touches on your current, your, the role we were just talking about at the PRISM Eye Institute, but also on your next role, which was your triumphant return to the Ontario Hospital Association as vice president. So in uh, both these roles, you're obviously managing a large healthcare organization. And under that management is a lot of people with more of a healthcare background. So you've got physicians, mm -hmm. you've got people in healthcare administration that are more on the healthcare side of things and the business side of things. So when you're working with these people with a different background, with what might be sort of a different alignment in priorities with, with uh, kind of that quality of care versus reaching that bottom line or managing the mm -hmm. budget, that sort of thing. Are there any uh, inconsistencies in priorities between those two groups? And how do you manage that communication with those people with a different background? Yeah, no, Tyler, your, your, your question points at one of the fundamental elements of, uh, in my opinion, anyways, uh, uh, clinical administration and management. I, I'm of the opinion that um, a clinician alone cannot run a healthcare organization, but I also think an administrator alone cannot run a healthcare organization. I think what works best uh, is a dyad model where the uh, lead clinician and lead administrator are connected at the hip. And they both respect what each other's do. Um, and uh, when you have that kind of a structure, you know, that's, you know, the ideal structure is a dyad and the entire kind of structure. I and mean, if you look at a lot of the, the bigger healthcare organizations that are very successful in the United States, that's what they have, right? And, I, and, and what I agree with is it's usually the clinician that's the CEO, which I agree with. Like you, you, I think you need the face of the organization to be somebody who's, you know, literally kind of had the experience of the, the key element of the work being done, like in working with patients and all that stuff. But, you know, I think a good clinician administrator knows their limits and a good administrator who has, does not have a clinical background knows their limits too. And, and so I think my, my recommendation to somebody as they get into those roles is to start building the bridges with the clinicians as soon as possible and uh, treat them as a partner uh, treat them as part of the same team. And the more you can connect, make those connections, the more you can actually be successful as an administrator. Um, but I think if you try and fake your ability to do the clinical side, uh, there's no way you'll be able to convince the clinicians uh, of the importance of, you know, making change or whatever it may be, you know, clinicians in a lot of ways, I mean, they're, they're team players, depending on who they are and the, and the circumstances. But, you know, they're, they're also a clan, right? Like, in, unless you have the white coat, uh, it's very hard to kind of be on the inside of it. And then the only thing I'll add as well is, you know, take the time to uh, build your skill set in their space. Uh, take, you know, I, you know, wear, put on some scrubs and go into, you know, scrubbed into the OR and, uh, you know, spend a day with a technician, see what they do, right? Like, get to know the operations, they'll respect it. Uh, get to know the, the medicine, they'll respect it, but also realize you're learning these things to help you, but you can never replace uh, the leadership on the clinical side. That's what I've seen and experienced, um, and I think it'll save you a whole lot of heartache, and it'll allow you to reach success a lot faster if you focus on building the bridges rather than kind of pound in your chest and take control because it's just not going to work. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. You mentioned uh, the close coordination being a really good strategy 
uh, when working in the healthcare system. Uh, we also noticed that your role at OHA, you work with a variety of different uh, departments in planning business cycles, whether that's data analytics, HR, finance, or others. And we were interested in knowing uh, what is your approach in working with such diverse teams and what helps you keep communication and alignment of strategy in these positions? Uh, yeah, um, hmm. that's a, that is a tough one. I mean, and uh, I mean, I'm sorry, um, I have another friend called Abby. So, um, you know, it's tough because uh, my role is quite broad. Uh, so uh, I make a pretty strong effort to help to tie the connection between all the different roles so the team sees it. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of it is more my ability to wear different hats. So, you know, I'll tell you, I, I would not take on a senior leadership role if I didn't feel like I had the skill set and experience to do it. So, you know, every single part of my file at, uh, right now, at some point in my career, I've had some senior leadership experience. And uh, so I'm able to wear different hats. Um, and, you know, you just have to uh, be able to do that, right? Like, and, you know, it's, it's one of the big challenges of, uh, and you guys will, you know, you guys are quite intelligent, uh, smart guys with quite a good experience already. So I'm sure you moved to senior leadership roles very, very quickly. Um, the challenge for a lot of people as they move through their careers that they can't let go of the doing and uh, start be, assuming a different role of, uh, of leadership, right? Like, people don't expect you to be doing everything when you're a leader. Uh, your only responsibility is to pick the right folks uh, to, to kind of always oversee the work being done and, and whatever it may be. And I'm very blessed to have a direct team that's, you know, some of the best people I've ever worked with in my life and then empower them to do their work and then, you know, play the executive role when you need to internally and externally. And that's it. Right. And your, the executive role is strategic. It's removing obstacles. It's going to the board for support around risk elements or financing or resources. Um, and, you know, if you pick the right team, they'll love that you're there to empower them and you're not getting into the minutia of what they do and the micromanagement and all that stuff. You know, they, the micromanagement will take you as far as being a successful manager. Uh, but, you know, like if you really want to be able to be an executive, right? Like, and think about the next level up, right? CEO, there's no way you're going to know about, you know, clinical care and HR and finance and accounting. Like you have to be able to know enough to be dangerous and challenge your team and go uh, to the minutiae if you need to, if there's a problem. But, you know, it's all about empowerment, all about trusting your team and all about picking the right folks and putting them in the right place and, and playing the leadership role. And that's uh, that's an experiential thing that comes. Yeah, you touched on the fact that a big part of managing everything is managing that board of directors and reporting to them. And we see that that's a big part of your current role as well. So I guess we're just wondering, while you're in a for-profit organization, the board looks for things like profit, sustainable growth, return on equity, those sorts of things. What would you say they're looking for when you're in more of a public service organization like you're in? I, I'm, I, I feel lucky that I, my, my mentor and, and uh, right now my CEO, Anthony Dale, you know, he's like the, the board whisperer. Like he's got so much experience with the board and he knows that the healthcare system and politics so well that, that you know, I've learned a ton just watching him. And, uh, you know, the, the OHA as an association is a different animal when it comes to a non-for-profit because it's an association. And, and because the, all 142 hospitals are, are part of the board, our board members, if you look at our website, it's all kind of former hospital board members, but also hospital CEOs. That's the, that's the makeup of our board. So they care about the, our ability to achieve our strategic objectives, which, you know, uh, Abhinav just mentioned them, you know, data and analytics, uh, our ability to be the voice of hospitals and government. Uh, we do the collective bargaining on behalf of hospitals for all the major unions. Um, and we do quite a bit of learning and engagement work for the sector. So as hospital board members and CEOs, they care about us being able to achieve those goals. But as governors, they also care about uh, the OHA running its operations well so that we continue to be financially viable. 
uh, so that we can raise risk and address it when it comes up. And, you know, that's another part of the business school world, Tyler, that I don't think we get enough exposure to is governance. Uh, that's something I actually was really shocked about when I started getting into real governance. And, and I know, you know, I've drank the Kool-Aid on the OHA side, uh, but I think the OHA has some of the best board governance I've seen out there. And, and most board members, when they join or leave, they'll say, holy moly, you guys are, are so organized. And, and it, there's, a, there's a huge value of having strong governance uh, in what you do. And I think uh, it, it's certainly there on the large organization side, but I encourage even smaller organizations to consider good governance because it just makes management and board's life uh, so much easier and so much more effective. But to answer your question, this particular organization just is concerned and focused on achieving the objectives as we have in our strategic plan. That's uh, really interesting. You mentioned uh, getting experience in board governance and working with board of directors. It's something uh, actually John, uh, president uh, of Kensington Health also mentioned to us. So interesting trend. Uh, hearing it from you as well. Uh, I did yeah. want to dive in a little bit uh, into OHA and kind of the response uh, to COVID-19. Tyler and I recently actually competed in a case competition looking at how COVID-19 might have revealed <clears throat> some of the vulnerabilities of uh, the Canada healthcare supply chain. And we were interested in knowing how has uh, the pandemic reshaped the way OHA looks at procure procurement of hospitals? Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you guys come up with any answers <laughs> in your case study? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So, so I, I'll get to the procurement part, but let me start with the system part. Okay. Uh, if you rewind the clock two years ago, right, like we had a new government voted in on the mandate of ending hallway medicine, right? And uh, like I said, I think it was creeping one of your first podcasts and you guys were talking about uh, system, systems coming together and being better integrated, right? And, and that being the challenge of Ontario, at least, because you know, I don't know if you guys noticed, but we're the only province that does not have a regional health authority, which I think has its own problems, but we won't go there. So hallway medicine, uh, if you guys don't know what it is, right? Like, this time every year, the flu season kicks in. Hospitals are operating at greater than 100% capacity. So when that happens, you're being treated in the hallway. That's what hallway medicine is. And hallway medicine happens when a system fails to integrate and flow patients between providers out of the hospital and into the community and back and forth, catching patients so they don't actually end up at the hospital. But it also comes with a from a lack of capacity planning over a long period of time. And I think we're, we are where we are right now based on both uh, kind of uh, unfortunate kind of lack of focus in our, in our system. So when COVID hit, right, we we're so lucky that the first wave hit in the spring. In the spring, hospital capacity is at its lowest. So, you know, the, the rush on ICU beds was bad, but it could have been a lot worse, like what we're facing right now with wave two. Like right now we're facing wave two and the flu season, but you know, thank God physical distancing is crushing the flu a little bit, but we're in, we're in trouble right now, right? Like we've exceeded the, the 150 ICU mark of, of COVID patients that we tagged as the, the amount that the system could handle, you know? So I think uh, coming back kind of to your question, COVID highlighted the uh, kind of weakness in our system. Uh, it highlighted uh, the siloed nature of what we do. Uh, it also highlighted, unfortunately, uh, you know, what the head of the World Health Organization called kind of moral bankruptcy in the way that we uh, warehouse senior citizens. Um, and, I, and I say this with caution because I have a lot of good, very hardworking friends in long-term care facilities. They do an amazing job with the resources they get. So, you know, I think uh, it's not about a blame piece in terms of what happened here, but it's about us. Uh, hopefully, as citizens, uh, taking the time to look post-COVID at what did happen here and how did we get to where we are, and and you know, hospital, the healthcare system, you got to think of it as a flow system, 
right? Like you can't just focus. You can't just say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm on the hospital side. I can't just say, let's build more hospitals. That'll solve the, the pandemic problem if it ever happens. That's not the solution, right? The, you have to look at it as a continuum of care. You have to look at it as, yes, if a pandemic hits, how are we going to increase capacity of the hospital? And at any given time, do we have enough capacity to meet uh, the, the capacity issues that we have next year? And then on normal days, you know, how do we actually move patients out of the hospital that don't actually need to be there? And, you know, the, the real winning formula is to start to think about um, how do we even prevent patients from coming into the hospital? Like, the, you know, the big hospital networks in the U.S., like Kaiser Permanente, they're, they're building uh, housing uh, for, for people in their catchment area because, you know, people's health is is based on socioeconomic determinants of health. So if somebody has a job, has a good place to live, uh, is eating good food and is looking forward to the future, chances are that person's not gonna get sick. So I think, you know, for us, we, we took a pretty bad hit. Uh, uh, and, you know, I th- and I think we got through it with a, some, some uh, by pure luck, if I'm being really honest, and, you know, just acting in time and Ontario citizens being quite good in, in their, uh, kind of response to physical distancing when they needed to. And then the procurement side, yeah, that's our next big challenge, Abhinav. Um, you know, I think we, as a system, again, it's it's uh, an, an ability to coordinate uh, one of the biggest logistical operations of our time. I mean, the military is being called into this. Uh, but we don't quite have the physical infrastructure that the United States would have, right? Like, we have these massive freezing facilities in the U.S., located in the central east and the central west of the United States that allows them to, and they have manufacturing capacity for, for vaccine. We don't have this. We're, we're dependent on a set of contracts and, uh, you know, some very hardworking folks in, in the military and in the healthcare sector to, to deliver this, uh, the vaccine. But it's, it, it's going to be an exercise unlike anything we've ever done before. But, you know, so I, 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 I tie your question back into us thinking better as a system. And I think we have a long way to go. And I hope, you know, I hope we don't forget about this and we go back to clawing back healthcare dollars because it's 50 cents on the tax dollar to, to make up for the debt that we got into in response to the pandemic. And, you know, the average citizen doesn't vote based on healthcare anymore. And, you know, in another 50 years, our, you know, great, our grandkids are going to be saying, having the same virtual talk probably in a kind of virtual reality setting or something saying, you know, oh, I wonder what we can learn. <laughs> so I really hope, I really hope this uh, is something that we come out of stronger. And I, I, I'm, I'm an internal optimist and I think we will. Yeah, that emphasis on community care and the importance of allocating resources proportionately to that, to that system of the healthcare system has been a, a running theme early on in these first. Just to maybe come to a close here, one final question would be, uh, we know that in the, the COVID, COVID-19 has really uh, brought new innovations to the healthcare uh, sectors, such as, you know, innovations in e-health and IT. And just wanted to know, I know that uh, the OHA recently extended their strategic plan in order to uh, reflect on the lessons learned during this time to implement in the future. And I wanted to maybe know, drawing more on your optimistic thinking, uh, where do you see uh, the lessons that are learned here going into the future and how that will transform our healthcare in, in, in Canada? Yeah, no, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the question I've been asked. That's the, the question we're all debating now, you know, and, and we actually have a, an internal working group uh, of what we call a matrix team. Uh, looking at exactly that question. I mean, I think in my mind, um, and it's something you guys actually said in your podcast. I don't know if you remember what you said in your original podcast, but I just listened to it this morning. That's why I remember it so well. Uh, you know, uh, I think addressing it from different aspects is, is, is a good way to, to at least start thinking about it. The first is data, right? Like uh, one of the things that the OHA has recognized in our strategic planning process is there is so much data out there. We don't need to create more data. Uh, what we need to do is integrate that data. And, and I think you guys were talking about finding ways to integrate the data. The ideal world is you have electronic medical record systems talking to each other. 
But the reality is in Ontario, we don't have the money to do it. We've tried to do it a few times, you know, and then we've had a few scandals over it. And uh, the best way to do it is indirectly by pulling all that data and knitting it together together in an integrated way. And that's something the OHA is actually focusing a lot of time and resources on. And you'll see us uh, coming out of the gate in 2021 focused around that. So I think uh, capturing data and presenting it back to system planners and clinicians in a way that where we can manage care better, that's, an, that's one very big one. I think the other one is, um, in my personal opinion, is in the OHA, uh, I think we all know uh, what a, an integrated healthy system looks like. I think we also all know what the obstacles are. And I think it's going to take quite bold, bold leadership all across the sector to uh, recognize those obstacles and change the way we do things to make it work. And, and you know, the third part, part of this, uh, which is connected, I've, I've done a lot of work in my role on, uh, you know, uh, kind of system flow uh, and uh, how to optimize system flow across the sector. And I think we uh, have to apply some of these best practices uh, in Ontario and, and find a model that works best and, and, and all start kind of singing from the same song sheet. And, you know, and, and related to that, you know, unfortunately, the system right now operates in different uh, groups. You know, you've got hospitals, you've got community care, you've got long-term care, and you've got uh, physicians. And I think there's a value of each one operating uh, and focusing on, on their own work. But you know, we're going to have to find a way to, to better interconnect them. Um, so you know, in, you know, I don't think we're going to get another pandemic in the next ten years. Uh, but we're facing we face little mini pandemics every year with the flu season getting worse and worse. Um, you know, we face a longer wave of kind of stress through an aging population that we can't care for. And unfortunately, with working professionals being where they are, a lot of them rely on the system to take care of their parents. So, you know, this, this stress continues to grow. And unless we find a better way to provide flow and uh, innovate, as you say, and, and capture data so we can manage the system better, uh, we're going to be in trouble again. So. Seemed like a nice optimistic ending to the episode there for a second. Yeah. Took a quick turn at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, can I can I say can I say something about the optimistic side, Taylor? Yeah, Tyler, for sure. I okay. you know I'll tell you I I was probably not the the guy you wanted to invite to a uh, virtual cocktail party over the last six months, uh, but over the last month or so, I have started to become very very optimistic about the future, even without the vaccine. We're, you know, what the epidemiologists are saying is that we're, we're reaching the end of the arc of this virus uh, in terms of its growth, even though, you know, it's, the rates are quite high, especially in Toronto right now, but we're kind of nearing the end with a bit more discipline on the physical distancing side. And when the spring and summer comes along, the virus will already take a big hit in its growth because we will start having herd immunity and all that kind of stuff. The vaccine is really the, the uh, KO punch here. And, uh, you know, I actually think uh, we're going to be having a conversation like this next year in person and feeling, wow, you know, we've really gone through something quite, uh, quite big as a, as a society and as a world. Uh, but I'm feeling very, very optimistic about the future. And you guys should too. And, and even as MBAs in the group program, very respected uh, program in the healthcare world in Ontario and across Canada, you, know, you guys are going to be a part of the future that, uh, takes all the lesson learned here and, and, and apply it. So I think, you know, you've got a great career ahead of you of growth in the healthcare sector because all eyes will be on, you know, how can we do things better for at least a decade? So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about uh, in the time ahead. Yeah, and just on another point of optimism, actually, I read in the news this morning, Health Canada uh, granted authorization for the emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine. So uh, as you said, it's, uh, we're getting there. It's been a difficult time, but time for opportunity to learn and opportunity to improve our system for the future, whatever challenges may come. Uh, so with that, I, I think that's a great way to end off our episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and until we see you next time on the Healthcare Hub podcast. Great. Thank you, Evan F. Thank you, Tyler. This was a lot of fun. I uh, hope to catch you guys in person sometime next year.
Welcome to the Healthcare Hub startup segment. Today we'll be talking about H1, a company founded in 2002 out of New York. The idea of H1 can best be described as a platform that's like LinkedIn, but is specialized towards the healthcare industry. So using this platform, professionals can share their credentials and learn about research that is going on with professionals in their specific specialties. In the middle of the global pandemic, it was critical for healthcare leaders to be able to connect with other physicians, as well as pharmaceutical companies and other private healthcare firms to find the experts on a given field more rapidly. By creating a database of many healthcare professionals, the company hopes to be the main source for life science companies that are hoping to attract talent and recruit healthcare professionals with specific skills and knowledge. To date, they already have 13 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies as clients, and the company has been seeing tremendous growth over 2020. They have more than 2 million in-depth profiles of healthcare professionals from over 16,000 institutions in over 70 countries. And the company has greatly increased their number of employees from 100 at the start of the year to nearly 250 now. And they expect this headcount to significantly grow over the next year. Most recently, they raised $58 million in Series B funding by special investing firms focused on the healthcare sector and currently hope to operate mostly out of the USA, but are looking to expand into Europe and into Asia. So just some of the main services that they hope to use their uh, data analytics and healthcare professionals database for uh, include services for medical affairs, communications, commercials, uh, commercialization and marketing, hospital and health services, and commercial analytics. So all these different fields that different private healthcare firms uh, are working on, uh, connecting them with these different services and connecting them with uh, leaders or healthcare uh, professionals and thought leaders in these fields to those different companies. So a really interesting way to go about it. And I think it's really been, um, uh, the pandemic has really been one source for this innovation and the growth that this company has seen. While there has been an increased emphasis on data privacy globally with governments passing many strict regulations, particularly, particularly aimed uh, at the big tech firms, uh, the opposite has been happening in the healthcare space in a sense where uh, you know, with the pandemic, increased collaboration and transparency of both research and data has been very important. And it seems like this company has been really riding uh, this wave of uh, improving the way that healthcare professionals and companies in the healthcare space are able to connect with one another because when we know that collaboration has been key. So this company doesn't have any plans to uh, come into Canada just yet, but it's interesting to see where they'll go and the basic concept of this. Uh, so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this, Tyler. I thought it was an interesting story, very, very simple idea, but something that doesn't really exist right now in the realm of uh, medical research, academia, and how things just work in um, innovation in the healthcare space right now. Yeah, I mean, I've seen smaller organizations that do similar uh, features, but they don't bring it all into one place. Like I've seen small scientific community recruitment platforms or, or networking platforms, but this one really has a lot of features that brings everything together. And outside of LinkedIn, which obviously has a much more broader spectrum for the professionals you can find, this one seems to have a lot of services geared towards specifically what, what you need, whether you're finding key opinion leaders, finding uh, customers, that you're selling something to, this seems to have a lot of very narrow uses. And just looking through the website, I could have used this in multiple previous roles. This would have solved a lot of headaches. Like I'm just looking at in their medical affairs solutions, you can identify a lot of key opinion leaders in the field. And when I used to work in pharmaceutical communications, finding those key opinion leaders to bring to uh, your events or to help create an event or create an educational program, that was really hard to recruit people. Not a lot of, you weren't really sure who would have the time to help you out. You weren't sure who specifically would have the best expertise on the topic you're touching on. So this platform really does a great job of having a huge database of uh, professionals from all sorts of backgrounds and finding exactly who would be the best key opinion leader for what you're creating. And then also in the commercial and marketing solutions, they seem to be able to really help you identify the right customers for things that whether in the medical space or the pharmaceutical space, I used to work uh, at a genetic testing company and a lot of the uh, customers we sold to were healthcare providers. And we had to do a lot of that identification through LinkedIn, which can have 
uh, very ambiguous outcomes when you're trying to identify customers. It just kind of gives you their job position, which can be pretty ambiguous. So having a database like this when I was selling things to healthcare providers would have been really helpful here. It seems like it gives you a lot of detailed information on everyone in the database and really helps you sort through it to find the people who are right for you. Yeah, I think it's really great and all the uh, commercial kind of uses for it that you just mentioned. I also think on the side of research, it might be interesting on how it could be used too. If uh, a potential research organization is looking for someone who specializes in a field, I think presently uh, the, the traditional databases for research are used as well as people who have their networks on LinkedIn. I think this could be uh, their networks on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a big source of sharing news and sharing uh, recent uh, findings in academia. I think this might be another, an additional way for people to share some of the things that are coming out and then for pharmaceutical companies or medical device companies to be able to uh, find the people who know uh, best on a particular topic. So really interesting stuff and uh, interesting tool for many companies to be able to use in the future. Yeah, definitely an imp impressive spread of uh, scholarly and clinical work that they have included in this database, like you mentioned. Very interesting to follow this company. They've gotten a lot of funding, so it seems like they've got a nice upward trajectory. Going to be cool to see where they go in the next few years. And with that, that's the Healthcare Hub News segment. Uh, thank you so much for listening to episode four of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Signing out for Tyler and I. Happy holidays, everybody. <laughs>